All right. How's everyone doing? That was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again to Witten Bible Church. For those of you that are here worshiping with us in person, those of you worshiping with us online, um, it is always such a joy that we get to do this together, right? I thought that the worship time was amazing. Today we continue with our series based on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this, king, this series that we have called The King and His Kingdom, and today we are looking into the first part of Matthew chapter 12, which we find a really interesting and oftentimes misunderstood concept from the Bible or in the Bible, which is the concept of God's law or the law of God. And what we're going to see is what um, our attitude should be as Christians, if you are a believer, what should be our attitude toward the law of God? And I want to start by making uh, kind of a distinction so we are all on the same page. Um, I think that everyone here, uh, when we approach the Bible, and I said this last week, I think, um, here or somewhere, uh, when we approach the Bible, every single one of us come to the Bible with a set of lenses already. So this is part of the reason why I'm wearing my glasses today, just to make it cool. Um, <laughs> is we all approach the Bible with a set of lenses. Lenses that have been formed or shaped by our background or our history or our context, right? And I would say that everyone here, including the preacher, we either have been influenced by the traditional view of the law of God or the modern view of the law of God. Everyone here will fall into one of those categories for the most part. And if you're really messed up, then you have both of them at the same time. So... Um, I don't want to insult anybody, but I, let me try to give you a description of how I view this. And if you get insulted by that, it's because the Lord wanted you to get insulted. <laughs> if you are part of the traditional view of the law of God, the tendency, unconsciously or consciously, would be to add to what God has already said. It's to confuse sometimes with what God had already said with what you think God had already said, is the tendency to put more to the Bible than what the Bible requires of us. That's on one end. And the other end, the tendency, if you are part of the modern culture, is not to add to the, what the Bible says, but to subtract from what the Bible already said. The tendency for this group of people here is to redefine what God had already made super clear. I actually think that um, this second part is kind of the most popular nowadays. But if you are a Christian and if you are a believer, my argument is going to be that you don't have permission to add to the Bible nor to subtract from the Bible. My argument this morning is going to be that regardless of what you are bringing is, when you look at a scripture and what God demands of you and demands of me, you have no permission to either add to what the Bible is saying or to subtract from what the Bible is saying. Now, the question for you is, what is it that these two groups have in common? Is that both groups, even if they have good intentions, have created a distortion of the law of God. 
So these are the three points that we're going to talk about today. The distortion of the law, the purpose of the law, the redemption of the law. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask the question, do you really understand the purpose of the law of God? Go ahead, go ahead. All right, quick, quick question. How many of you guys get bothered when I ask you to do this? Please raise your hand. <laughs> Love it. Let's keep on going. Point number one, the distortion of the law. If you were here last week or even if you weren't here, um, one of the verses we read last week is an extremely famous verse, which comes in chapter 11, verse 29. And the Bible says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and, I will and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think that the word yoke there is really important for many reasons. But one of the reasons why it's important is because it tells you that if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, like really, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, there is a yoke in the process. Meaning that if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you will be bound to Jesus. That somehow you will be restricted by Jesus. Because like in any healthy relationship, restrictions always need to be there. Even if you don't like it. I want to make the argument that in any healthy relationship, there must be rules. There must be a law. I think that is true for marriage. I think that is true for friendship. I think that is true for any kind of meaningful relationship you may have. Rules and regulations, law must be there. And even though for some people they may seem like restrictions, those restrictions are actually good. That's going to be my whole argument for this morning. Actually, we know that a lot of students are going back to college right now. Um, and most likely, if that's one of you, you're going to get a roommate if you're going to stay on campus. Man, and I guarantee you that if you want that relationship to work, there's going to have to be some sort of rules, right? If you've ever been in a place like that, two beds, two people sleeping, and the rules are simple, right? So if you're listening to a crazy music, put your headphone, uh, headphones on because I need to study. That's a rule, right? If you, we're going to live together, please leave your mess on your side of the room. That's a rule. Please take a shower. That's a rule, <laughs> Right? Uh, what is interesting, though, is that I think that those are the same rules that married, married people should have. <laughs> Please take a shower, right? In any healthy relationship, there has to be rules. There has to be restrictions. There has to be some sort of um, limitations to what we can do and we cannot do. The problem is not with the rules, church. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the distortion of the law. The problem is when we add to what God says or we subtract to what God says. And what I want to show you is that in the case of the Pharisees, which is the people that we are looking at today, they did not struggle with subtracting from the law. That's something we do. What their problem was is that they, the tendency was to add to what the Lord had already said. So in verse 1, for example, we find Jesus walking around with the disciples, and the disciples get hungry, and it says that they picked up some heads of grain and ate them. Now look at what it says in verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. 
Now notice that the Pharisees understand that there is a law that talks about the Sabbath. And their problem is not with the law. The problem, though, is that from their perspective, the disciples of Jesus are doing something that goes against the laws of the Sabbath. Now, I love this part because the, the Pharisees is about to get into this huge argument with Jesus, forgetting that the person that they're going to argue with is the Lord of the Sabbath. You know what that means? That if there's one person that has the right to interpret the law, and the one that created the law was the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, it's like someone, this has, this has happened to me, people. Someone comes to me, you know, for those of you that, I'm Colombian. You know, I, I know you couldn't tell, but I'm Colombian. No, I'm a Latino, for real. Um, and, and, and people look at me, and, and they say something like, good intentions, good, you know, loving people, some of you guys here. Um, you, you, you would say something like, you, you know how Colombians, you always hear, you, you always eat tortillas? <laughs> and I'm like, to begin with, it's not tortilla, it's tortilla, right? It, I get to correct you because you do this to me all the time, right? <laughs> and then I say, did you know that in Colombia, Tortillas are not a thing. Like, we don't eat a lot of tortillas there because it's a Mexican thing or a Central American thing. And people say, no. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. <laughs> this, is, this is the Pharisees talking to the Colombian Jesus about what to eat and not to eat. <laughs> now, this is what they did. They took the law of God, and somehow they thought that God's law was deficient. And they understood that they had the right to add to what God had already said. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, the Lord had already said that if you were hungry, it was okay for you to grab grains and eat it. You got to remember that back in those days, there's no Uber Eats, there's no restaurants. This is how people eat, right? But because they thought that this was not enough and it was not good enough, they decided to add a bunch of different rules. Actually, when you look at all the rules that they had, 613 rules. I wonder how many of you guys remember the Ten Commandments. How is it that these people remember 613 rules? And when it came to the Sabbath, they added so many different things in the Bible that they had 39 of them. You know, some of them really ridiculous. I actually bought the things so I could read them. Um, they would say, for example, that in the Sabbath, you couldn't write uh, long sentences, that it had to be like short sentences. So, you know, from their perspective, you could have Twitter but not Instagram. That was kind of the idea, right? It's 200 characters and that's it, right? They did something like, um, if you're sick, for example, you... If, unless you're about to die, we could do something for you. But if you're not about to die, we should take care of you tomorrow. This is, this is kind of what they added to the, to the Sabbath. Once again, it's because in their minds, somehow, being of this traditional group, they think that they have the right to add to what the Scripture says because the Scripture somehow was deficient. Now, Jesus would do something that is super interesting, and I think it's the same thing that we should all do whenever someone is confronting you with something that is not in the Scripture. Where would you get that from? 
This is basically what Jesus is going to do to these guys. Like, all right, I hear you, but where would you get that from? And he, he does that by using a phrase that appears two times in the text. is having you read. Like, where would you get that from? Having you read what the Bible says. So look at what he says. And he's going to give two examples. Verse 3. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? And Jesus is inviting them to remember something that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and 20, or through 21. In which David and his companions and his army are hungry and have nothing to eat. So look at what happened in verse 4. It says that he entered the house of God, the temple... And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Now, the consecrated bread were 12 pieces of bread that represented the 12 different tribes of Israel. And they were supposed to be baked and placed in the tabernacle and used on the Sabbath as an offering. And the only person that had the right to eat that bread was the priest. But according to 1 Samuel... What happened with David and his companions is that they're so hungry, they go to this priest, and the priest understands that it's lawful for him to use that consecrated bread to give it to David and his companions. And Jesus here is trying to make him understand that maybe, just maybe, they have a wrong perspective of the law. Now, the question you have to answer is, what is it that the priest understood that he thought that he had permission to take the consecrated bread to give it to David and his companions. Hold on a second. Because you're going to see that Jesus does this again. And now he's going to give him another example. And he says in verse 5, Or haven't you read in the law that the priest and Sabbath duty... In the temple, desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. Now, that one I think is a little bit more uh, complicated to explain, but the gist of it is this. For the Pharisees, rightly so, to a certain degree, no one's supposed to work on Sabbath day. The problem, though, with them is that what the disciples were doing by picking up grain, not only it went against what the Lord had already said, but they thought that that uh, uh, fell under the category of working. Jesus' argument is super simple. He says, almost like this, paraphrasing, yeah, I know what the Sabbath says, and I know that you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to take a rest day. But let me ask you something, Pharisee, men of the law. Can you explain why is it that the priest works on Sunday? See, the Pharisees will look at me right now as I speak and say, you're breaking the law. I hope you know that I'm working right now. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so Jesus' argument is that, yes, there is a law that ought to be followed. But if you notice, the priests are violating, quote, unquote, violating the law every Sunday, every Sabbath, or every Saturday back in those days. So the question remains, what is it that the priest understood from God that he had the right to, uh, quote-unquote, break the law? And what is it that Jesus understood that he's telling them, yeah, keep the Sabbath, but look at what happened here. 
What is it that David understood? What is it that the priest understood? What is it that Jesus understood about, about the law of God? And this is what I want you to hear. And I want you to uh, see. That the law of God is to be respected and obeyed. But that at the end of the day, what matters most is not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. That the law of God is not supposed to be this burden that you carry. That the law of God is given so you can love God better and love others better. That that is the spirit of the law. You remember in Matthew chapter 22? A man comes to talk to Jesus and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the thing that David understood, the priest understood, and Jesus understood. That is not so much about the letter of the law. Tell me what I need to do. But it's about the spirit of the Lord. Of the law. This is what Jesus is saying to this group of people that have the tendency to add to the scripture. You don't get to add to what I say. You can have your preferences, you can have your traditions, but you make sure that you don't confuse those preferences and those traditions with my law. So hear me out, church. I, I, I think that this is part of the issue that we have with traditions, you know? I'm a big proponent of traditions, just so you know. Because I think that traditions tells you something a little bit about yourself, tells you something about your history, it tells you something about your culture, it tells you something important that ought to be transferred from generation to generation. That's not the problem. The problem is when people take the tradition and elevate it to the position of God's word. So you ought to have your preferences. And you ought to celebrate whatever you want to celebrate, but just be careful that you don't confuse those with what God asks of us and demands of us. Christians and believers must make sure that we don't confuse those two things. Because intentionally or unintentionally, we are adding to the word of God. You know how dangerous that is? I'm going to get a little bit more personal, okay? I didn't do this for the first service, but I could do it with you. <laughs> That's why you have to be super careful when you use the word reverence of God. You can apply that to almost anything. The question is, what does the Bible say of what's reverence to God? So that's the problem from, you could say, the traditional view of the law of God. But because most of us, I think, represent the other, let me then talk to you about why is it that subtracting the modern view of the law of God is so dangerous. Because then God, Jesus says to us, you don't get to take away what I say. You don't get to redefine what I say. You have to listen and embrace what I say. Like, for example, I don't get to define what love is. Listen up, church. Love is not love. Love is what the Bible says love is. I don't get to go to my wife and say, I'm going to love you my way. You know what Heidi's going to say? You get out of my house your way. 
I don't get to love my family my way. I don't get to love you my way. I don't get to love my, my, my neighbors my way. I get to love the way the Bible says that I ought to love. So if the problem over here is that we add to the Scripture, the problem over here is that we subtract from it. Question. What then is the true purpose of the law? What then, if it's not the letter but the spirit, then what is the true purpose? What is the law then? Point number two, the purpose of the law. So the Pharisees get super upset with Jesus, right? Because the disciples are collecting this grain. And Jesus says something to them super interesting in verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And Jesus here purposely is about to do something super interesting. Because in a way he's saying, my law is not about sacrifice. It's about mercy. It's about compassion. It's about being kind. Remember why I told you that the law means per, uh, one of the purposes of the law is so we could love God and love our, other people better? So Jesus moves away from this conversation and he moves into the synagogue where there is a man with a physical disability. And Jesus wants to show them what the law of God does when it comes to love. Look in verse 10. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's super interesting because this man was not looking for Jesus. That's how we know that Jesus was doing this on purpose. He looks at this man with a shriveled hand. Jesus moves to their man. And, of course, the people are following and ask the question, is it lawful for you to heal on Sabbath? Look at how Jesus responds in verse 11. If any of you has a sheep and he falls in a pit on the Sabbath, would you not take hold of it and lift it out? You know, pause there for a second. Leave the verse on the screen. He's saying to them, you love your animals more than what you love people. I've seen people in the 21st century that do exactly the same thing, just so you know. <laughs> verse 12. How much more valuable is a person than a, than a sheep? Therefore, it is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And you find a, a really, really interesting word there, which is the word good. Keep that in mind. In verse 13 then, it says that he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and he was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And there's an intentionality there from the Gospel of Matthew to use the word good and to use the word restored. Because that is the primary purpose of the law. To bring good and to restore Interesting that the word good in the text can also be translated as beautiful or something that brings joy or happiness. And the word restore can also be translated as bringing back, reestablishing something, fixing something. When you put those two concepts together, it tells you that the primary purpose of the law is always good. That when the Lord asks of you something, whatever it is, it's always good. That at the end of the day, the only reason why the Lord asks you for something or to do something 
is because whatever he's asking of you is good, is beautiful, and produces joy. At the end of the day, whether you can see it or not, that at the end of the day, the law of God should never be a burden. Listen up, church. But it's always a gift. It brings you back to him, and he tells you how the life is supposed to be. The law of God is always good, even if you can understand it, even if you can see it. So here's a question for you. How many of you struggle trusting that the law of God is good? By show of hands. How many of you guys never trust? And before you raise your hand, stop lying. <laughs> so let me ask the question again. Don't you think that at times God asks you to do something that, go, that goes contrary to your reason? And it goes contrary to your understanding. And deep down inside, you're like, this cannot be that good. Let me ask the question again. How many of you guys have ever struggled with that? Raise your hand. Much better. You know where we got that from? Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that what the devil did? I've, I've talked about this before many times. Isn't that what the devil did with Adam and Eve? He gives us this rule, don't eat of this tree. Don't eat this fruit. Right? And he doesn't give an explanation. He just says, don't do it. And what the devil does is he comes to this couple and he starts, he invites them to question the goodness of God. Paraphrasing, he's saying, yeah, I, I think that the Lord is keeping you for something cool, you know. I, I, I think that the, the, the God is robbing you from true happiness. And ever since that moment, every single one of us still in our hearts, even if you have been a believer forever, Question the goodness of God when he asks you to do something that you don't want to do. But when we think about the purpose of the law, that everything that God asks of us at the end of the day is good and beautiful and it's always for our joy, then it becomes a gift and not a burden. It's something that brings you back to God and brings you to a life in the way everything's supposed to be, even if you can see it and even if you can understand it. Let me apply that principle then to the concept of Sabbath. Now, I don't think that this text, uh, the primary purpose of this text is to explain to you why is it that the Sabbath is important. That is, I don't think that's the purpose of the text. I think that the, Matthew is using the concept of Sabbath to explain what our attitude should be toward the law of God. But because it is there, I want to use it as an application to see where you stand on this one. Good? All right. Sabbath, from a biblical perspective, I would say, it's a day when you stop from everything that you do regularly, right? Uh, and you stop to enjoy God, to, for your body and your heart to rest. It's a time in, we, in which you get to enjoy life in a different way. You enjoy, to, uh, you enjoy the people that the Lord has given you. It's a day in which you're supposed to have fun. It's a day in which you can serve and love other people. Remember, love God, love your neighbor. That's what Sabbath is all about at the end of the day. But if you are part of the more traditional view of the law, 
You come to church. You can come to church. You can read the Bible. You can worship. You can sing. You can serve. You can give money. You can do all these things. And you never miss. But you got to ask the question, why is it that you take this so strict? Or strictly speaking, why do you take it that way? And I want to make the argument that if, if you don't understand that the law is a gift, maybe just maybe the part of the reason why you do this is because you think that if you come to church, if you take the day of rest, if you read the Bible, if you do all these things, maybe, maybe, just maybe, the motivation of your heart is because you think that if you do this, you won't lose God. Or you can earn God. That would be the legalistic approach to the law of God. So you don't do this because you want to enjoy God and enjoy other people and gather as Christians and all these things. But you do it because you are afraid that if you don't do this, the Lord will punish you somehow. Or, from the traditional point of view, you do this because you think that if you do this enough times... The Lord is going to owe you something. You have no idea how many times I heard people say, well, I don't know why I'm going through this. You know, I've been a good person. That's a moralistic perspective and the law of God. Can you see how the motives really matter? This is what is interesting about this view. The Sabbath day, the rest day, it's actually work day. You are working out your salvation, but not in a good perspective. You are working so you don't lose God. You are working so God owes you something. You are working not because God is beautiful, but because you don't want to lose something. That's how messed up this is. This is. But let's say that you are in the other camp. Let's say that your view of the Sabbath from a modern perspective it's something that you can completely undermine. It's something in which you say, well, it's a good suggestion, God. I don't need it. I'm glad you rested because you got tired, but I don't have to. I wonder if this is the reason why many Christians today usually take a day to rest and worship with all the believers, maybe once or twice a month. I... I wonder if that's the reason. I wonder if this is the reason why it is much easier for people to appreciate a sermon at home instead of gathering with the rest of believers. I wonder if this is the reason why it's so easy for us to replace Sabbath with 20 other thousand things, including sports. Oh, God, personal. Because I think that we have forgotten what is the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of Sabbath? So let me remind you that anything the Lord asks of you, at the end of the day, it is good. It is beautiful. And it will give you joy. Even if you can't see it. Even if it feels like a burden sometimes. Because it's a gift. How would a story be different if Adam and Eve would have never believed the lie? 
that the devil put there. So here's a question. What should we do with this? Because if it's true that every single one of us is carrying this thing inside of our hearts in which we question God's motives and we question what he wants from us, how, how, do, we, how do we deal with this? So before going to point three, let me, let, me, let me make this clear to you. Anything that God demands of you, any law God gives you, is always an expression of his character. So there's nothing the Lord is asking of you that is not in alignment to who God is. Good, faithful, righteous, amazing God. Right? But the second thing that you have to see there is that in order for us to truly learn how to fight this thing within, you have to see the person behind the law. You have to force yourself to see the character of God behind the law. Because it is only, it's only when you see who God is and what he was willing to do for you in which your mind changes and your heart changes to the point that you could say, there is a good reason why the Lord is asking me to do this. You know where I learned that firsthand when I got married? So I got married and Heidi had a list for me, man, of the things that she wanted me to change. I didn't even ask her for it. She just brought it. And to be fair, I had a list for her. Now, I could take that list and say, what's wrong with you, lady? I'm going to love you my way. Or, because I know her, and she loves me, and I love her, I could say, I'm going to pay attention to this list. Point number three, the redemption of the law. One thing that the Bible makes clear is that if you want to know the God of the Bible, the Father of eternity, the Father of your salvation, you have to know the Son. That if you want to know the heart of God, you have to know the heart of the Son. And right at the end of this passage, we have this amazing piece of poetry that Prophet Isaiah said, and I'm going to give you just a couple of verses. Look at what it says in verse 18. It says, here is my servant who I have chosen. This is God the Father speaking. The one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Notice the way the Father describes the Son. A servant, chosen one whom I love, whom I delight in. And then in verse 20 it says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And the two things that I want you to see there is super simple. Notice that it describes you and me as bruised reeds. You know what that means? That you were broken and I was broken. That you were hurt and I have been hurt. That you are weak and I'm weak. But it says that part of, the Jesus, part of the reason why Jesus comes to us is not to break us in our weakness, but to redeem us and to help us and to save us and to restore us. If that is the, one of the primary reasons why Jesus comes, not to break you but to heal you, what makes you think that you cannot trust him when he asks you to do something? 
He is not in the business of breaking you. He is in the business of healing you, even if he needs to break you first. The second thing that I want you to see there is the word justice. And he tells you that part of the reason why Jesus come is to fix what was broken. To fix our relationship with God. To put things right again. And this is part of the reason why Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross not just to take the condemnation of our sin, but to break the power of sin in us. To, t- to take what we deserved. To make things right with God. And also to make things right with each other. That will be the whole description of what justice is. So this is the question for you. If Jesus was willing to do all of that for you, if Jesus was willing to sacrifice all of that for you, what makes you think that when the Lord asks you to do something, it's not for you good? See, one thing that I learned about love is that saying I love you is never enough. You know how someone loves you for real? By how much they're willing to sacrifice for you. Now look at Jesus. How much he sacrificed for you. How dare you ever wonder if he loves you. However you, how, 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 you, how can you doubt that he doesn't want the best for you? So when he tells you to do something, and he asks you to surrender something, it's because truly, truly is what is going to bring him glory, and it's going to be for your joy, even if you cannot understand it. Trust him. Can God be trusted? For sure. Look at Jesus and what he did for you. Let's pray. God, I know that depending on our background, our history, the stuff that we have gone through, our tendency could be either to add to what you have already said or to subtract from what you have already said. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and the ministry of the Spirit, We may learn to see not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And that you help us, Lord, submit to what you want us to do. Because at the end of the day, Lord, everything that you are requesting of us, it comes from a heart that is good. It comes from a heart that is righteous. It comes from a heart of a person that wants the best for us. It comes from the heart of a God that will never ask us for anything that at the end of the day will not give you glory and will produce joy in us. Can you please help us believe that? Can you please help us understand that? Can you please help us submit our will to that? And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches.